Liz, what's up? Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm doing all right. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm every day, like a friend just texted me to be like, Hey, do you want to run next week? She's like, she's my running buddy. And I was like, yeah, like any day, like, <laughs> like, I don't think we like, cause you know, like our life before would be like, Hey, you know, I'm going to be out of town Friday, but I'll be back Sunday. Do you want to run Sunday? Like, it was like, always like she works dur- like we have opposite schedules. She works during the day. I always travel. So it's just so funny that like, we're st- like me and my, even my sister's like, Hey, do you have time to talk this week? Yeah. Just fucking call me. Like I'm not doing anything. What, like, do, <laughs> how much do you miss like traveling? Um, I miss being in different places, the act of traveling, packing, unpacking, um, you know, uh, like trying to find food, even though I've been hungry all day, being at the airport, but then trying to like get stuff done. And then like the shower is weird for some reason. And then like the, like all that stuff, like the chaos of being in a different place every couple of days, I don't miss any of that, but like being different places and leaving i do miss now are you the type of person when you do travel you unpack as soon as you get there and then when you get home you're an unpacker as soon as you get home because you have ocd so i would imagine i so i'm i'm you can kind of see from the back i'm like organized chaos so like like right now i i can't show you my desk because i would cry like i've spent almost last night trying to be like i clearly like need things to be organized, but it disperses into chaos very quickly. So like I have to give myself strict rules. So like a hotel I don't care about. So a hotel is like, I'll be out of my bag, underwear and like socks and shit will be everywhere. Towels are hanging from the ceiling. I don't care about the hotel, but when I come home, I care about my home. So it's like, if I don't pack, my rule is I have to unpack within the first hour. But this is, but this is the thing. This is why. I'm probably going to leave tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? So like, honestly, like if I'm using the same stuff, it doesn't matter, but because I'm probably going to leave in two days, I'm just going to, everything is always going to be sloppy in my room if I don't have rules for normalcy. So if I unpack within the first hour, everything goes where it's supposed to go. My suitcase goes in the closet. And then I have two days where I'm really home. I'm not kind of home because my stuff isn't just laying out and I'm not living. Cause the other thing is you start living out of a suitcase in your own home yes, and it just yes. really messes with you when that is your life. And it's become such a pet peeve for me that like I, um, I went upstate to stay at my friend has like a farm and we always do this 4th of July thing. Clearly it was very weird and not the same. So to prevent being in her home, we rented an RV and the, RV was on her property. (laughs) And so we get there and I'm with my boyfriend. And the first thing I do is I unpack and I use all the drawers and my boyfriend's living out of his suitcase for the full four days that we're there. But I'm like, I need, and then I took my suitcase and I put it in the car. So I just didn't want to see it. I like, I, for four days, I live in this RV. This is my life. This is where I keep my socks. This is where the soap goes. Like, I just need to feel like this is my home, even if it's for four days. Do you feel like it's hard to date you? Cause you just said you had a boyfriend, but it's hard to date you because of your OCD. Does that ever get in the way? Um, my personality does enough. It's, I don't <laughs> think that really is the problem. I, um, I've noticed I'm much better and I'm more aware. Like, it's funny. Like I, I interviewed a girl, I do a, a podcast for the Jed foundation, which is like um, mental illness awareness and, and suicide prevention. So I, I interviewed a girl that has like severe OCD, like every kind of stereotype you think of like constantly brushing her teeth and washing her hands. I'm not there. Mine's more like a kind of like a mental and like an organ weirdly. Like I, it made me, when you realize you have a kind of like a baby version or an alternative version of it, it kind of releases you and, and makes you feel better about your habits. So like, I remember the example of being like, okay, this pen goes there and they go, well, why does it go there? It just goes there. It just fucking goes there. So like when you realize how strict you are with how things are supposed to be, you start to go like, that's my, that's not life rule. That's a Liz rule. And so when I was, I lived with a boyfriend, this is like 10 years ago and we moved in together and I found myself so angry so immediately at him because like the dishes go here like they have to go here there's no other way that they would go here he was also much taller than me so as a short person I'm like stop putting stuff up there like why are you torturing me like there was all this like anger towards stuff that was like 
like I had to mentally explain. So now with my boyfriend, now it's more like I have to go, Hey, if this doesn't bother you, can we do it my way? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like if it's something yeah. where we're both on the same level of, of anger, then we talk about it and we compromise. But if you don't care, then can we just do it my way? Because I'm going to be stressed out otherwise. Does that make sense? It like does it's, make sense. It, and, it's like, and it's like, you don't want to rule over somebody. That's not how I want to be as a girlfriend. But it's like, if it's not causing you any distress and I'm crying about it, can we just do my way? What, what's, the, what's the one thing you've done that to him with? Um, thing, it really is like a top shelf thing. Like I'm, top I'm, shelf. So he was putting things where you couldn't reach it. Yeah, and then things are breaking. I'm climbing on shelves. He's, <laughs> he's asleep and I'm crying because I can't reach the T. Like, it's just like, it's little stuff like that. Or like, um, I'm, very, I don't, I'm very clumsy. So like, I also organize in a way because I don't know about you, but like, I very, like, I very rarely invest in like beauty products. But when I do, it's like, they're like magic potions to me. Where like, there was like this, I have like hormonal acne and there was this like acne serum. They don't even make it anymore, but it came in a glass bottle and you like kind of did like two drops. You could like make, really have it spread out for like a couple of months. And I dropped it and it shattered and it was expensive. And I was like, I was like on the floor, almost like rubbing my face. Like I was like, <laughs> no, my potion. Like I was so upset about it. So because that happened, I learned a really sad lesson and I became a little like, again, you become obsessed about things afterwards. So like, I, like, I remember using it and I would put it in like this box and then the box would go somewhere else so that this would never happen again. And I remember he moved it and I had to like talk to myself and be like, he doesn't know it's magical potion. We need to explain to him that this potion is what keeps us sane. Well, <laughs> But at least at least you have conversations about it where some people would just get mad because, you know, there's things like I'm sure I do and my wife does, but it's kind of like you have to let them do it a couple of times before you go, oh, you know what? By the way, I don't like when this happens, you know, yeah. so you got to have that conversation, though. And, and you have to have an awareness of it, because I think the hardest part is like I would say like Liz 10 years ago was just like everybody is an asshole and trying to hurt me like it feels intentional. And then you start to go and you go, oh, these are made up rules that there's no way in hell they would know about that. Some of them aren't even based in logic. If I don't tell them, how are they going to know? It's like the same way that like. My, my boyfriend likes to make fun of me. I don't know. I feel like it's normal. And maybe it's like a Jersey thing. I like toasted bread with butter with jam on top. Like I just, I feel like. See, it's I like toasted bread with peanut butter on top. That yeah, is so, yeah, that's a with, choice. Yeah. It's a choice. I'm it's not a choice. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to judge you for it. Okay. But thank not, you. That's not, that's not what I would do, Michael. So, <laughs> so he sees me do it sometimes and he looks at me like I'm a freak and I go, that's fine. But if I want toast, you now know what I want. I don't want your bullshit toast. I want my bullshit toast. And it's like a simplistic example of like, you kind of teach people how, like he knows how I like my tea, like, and it's borderline like gross sweet tea. Like it's a little gross. Okay, like, how do you like your tea? I, I gotta know this. I like black tea with probably three like spoonfuls of sugar, like a teaspoon, oh which is- Oh my gosh, that's fuck, horrible for fuck you. Fuck Fuck you. I'm very no, That's horrible. I'm, whatever. I'm healthy everywhere else. Let me have my sugar tea. <laughs> and then I like milk in it because that's how my mom took it. And then you go to London or like, I, I love bubble tea and like, you bubble know, tea. I, what, what is bubble tea? I'm sorry. You are half Asian and this oh. is insulting to your culture. <laughs> um, so uh, bubble tea, which is like, it's funny when I, my sister got me into bubble tea. Um, it's, is, she, is she Asian? No, but her, her, husband, so. her husband's Filipino and she went to a school with a lot of Asians and she lived in uh, little, by little the whatever, way, you know, all whatever. Asians aren't the same type of Asians, right? They have different no, Asians. No, but this is where bubble tea unites the Asians to oh, be perfectly right. honest. So it's, it's, I think it's Taiwanese, but in my mind, the first time I had it, I was like, this is some ancient culture. It's from the eighties, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> it's like some made, it's like tapioca balls in sweet tea. Like, oh, that. Uh, yeah. boba, boba tea. Boba, yeah. That's what, oh, that's garbage. Go fuck yourself. No, that's I'm garbage. More, I'm more cultured than no. you are. But no, it because is. you call you call it this is the, the wrong name. It's, it's the no boba tea. No, no. I mean, first of all, 
-hmm. it goes by many names. Okay. okay. I'm not going to uh, have this fight with you. Okay. Um, but my sister got it in, got me into it. And then I've become kind of like obsessed with it. And then it's become like, it's made me feel less weird about my sweet tea obsession because if you get Thai iced tea or if you get, um, you know, uh, that's the worst Thai ice. They put more sugar in I that. Love it it's, so much. it's so bad for you. It's I so love bad. it. I'm not having it every day, but I love it so much. Oh my God. It's horrible for you. I get oh, it. I understand. Oh. oh, that was my alarm for us. <laughs> oh, well, there's, we've already started. So yeah, we're we way ahead of schedule here. Yeah, we started no, early. But I tried Thai tea once because I don't really get a super sweet tooth. But if things are too salty or sugary, it, it, it's, I get very aware of it. And it's kind of shocking to me. Thai tea blew me up. I was like, oh, my God, this is like. Oh, it's. Awful. it's oh, yeah, yeah. The first time I like had so it, I was. Sugar. But I'll say this because I'm like a sugar, like I'm, I'm more contained of a sugar addict than I was before, but I do have a very intense sweet tooth. So, but it is funny. I remember the first time I had Thai iced tea, I was like freshman year of college and my, we went to a Thai restaurant and my friend was like, oh, you should try this. I think you would like it. And she knows like, I love candy. And I tried it and I was like, it was the first time I felt seen. Like I was like, because you know, cause this is the thing is like, I would put so much sugar and stuff. And like, I used to be a Splenda person, not because I liked the taste of it, because it was one packet of Splenda as opposed to three sugar mm -hmm. packets. And it makes you look less like a freak. And so to me, and I went off it cause it's like so bad for you. I was like, I might as well just have the real thing. But when you, when you have something, it's like, it's like when somebody likes the same dish as you, you're just like, oh, we have the same palate. It was the first time that I was like, I'm not weird people like this crap like you know yeah. like the fact that we all like oreos whether it's good for you or not there's something addictive in oreos that cannot be explained there yeah, is some, crack they put crack in oreos there's some so. kind but like they're clear like i wish they would do a study because there's not one person i have met that can have any kind of like real control over the amount of or like i cannot have it in the house like i have zero control but like, if somebody hands me one, it's fine. But if there's a box, I'm like, this is this is how, this is how you gain all the weight. Like, I just can't. It's so weird. Uh, over the last, since I got Corona, I was in ICU for eight days. But I dropped so many bad habits. Like the benefit of it, you know, I made. You, it's it. like a cleanse. You went on a it, cleanse. <laughs> it really. I went on. A, I don't drink coffee anymore. Wow. Like, I, I cut coffee. I cut a bunch of sugar out. You know, wow. because the main thing when you got, I got out, I lost 15 pounds. So I was like, how can I actually keep how this can weight I off? Keep this COVID how can, body. <laughs> how can I keep this weight off over what's, here. What's your, what's your, your trick? And you're like, I almost died. <laughs> I almost died. I wouldn't recommend it. It hurts so bad. But no, it, it's a thing where when I got out, I was like, I woke up and my wife says, you want coffee? And I go, I really don't feel like drinking it. She goes, do you want this? I was like, no, I don't feel like eating that. So I just, when I got out, I met with a nutritionist and oh. I totally changed like the way I, I never ate bad, Yeah, of but course. I eat way more healthier now because my palate totally changed in that 14 days, eight days in ICU. And then like two weeks, just trying to figure out how to get back to normal. So I totally cleans my pal cleanse my palate and I feel so much better now. But when I hear somebody like you go three packs of sugar, I'm like, oh my God, I would like, I would literally go nuts. I had a shot of coffee. Okay. After like 21 days out of the hospital, because I was like, well, maybe I can try it. It, it made me so shaky where I was like, yeah. how did I do this before? And it would do nothing to me. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Well, I, I, I have cleansed. I have like, I went almost three years without sugar. I have, I've always had really bad stomach issues. So um, in an investigation to figure out my stomach issues and figure out what was wrong with me, I did every kind of like diet. So like I have candida. So I did the candida diet. Um, I have IBS. See, you're just, I, candida diet. What is that? Candida. You're going to laugh at me because sugar is like the biggest culprit of it. Um, it's an overgrowth of yeast. And so like um, my tongue is like white often. And that's kind of like a sign uh. of it. Um, uh, like I've always had, pro it's funny. Cause I, I thought it got worse as I got older and like, you know, um, puberty and stuff, but I've ha probably had it since I was like a little kid. It's, and I'm sure this is where like, not pseudoscience, but like, I, I don't know enough to know how valid this no, is, but they, but they actually talk about like the diet of your ancestors or the diet of your grandparents affecting you along the lines to the point where like, I've read, like, you know how they're like, what's a good example? Um, seaweed, 
seaweed is like nutrition, nutrition dense, and it's really good for you. And it's like, it's not that it's not good for maybe somebody that came from a Mediterranean area, but if you're maybe Japanese and your ancestors ate seaweed, it might have more of an impact. Those nutritions might have more of an impact on you and your body, as opposed to somebody that grew up with whatever the fuck my ancestors, ancestors in Italy grew up with. Um, which would also explain how like Americans taking all this rice and we gain weight, but then all these Asian countries taking rice and it's not, it doesn't well, affect because them. Theirs is natural, not processed. That's a valid point as well. Yeah. It's so amazing that when you travel, cause you do a lot, how obese America is compared to everywhere else you go, you we know, cause as soon as you land at the airport yeah. here, you're like, Oh wow. It's a big difference. We, we don't eat real food. That's just a fact. Like, it's so funny how they're like, no GMOs, no GMOs. And you're like, it's too late. It's been too late for probably like 50 years. We don't, we, there's so much chemicals in our food that our body literally cannot process. There's, um, our, our, even our vegetables aren't real. Like they're, you know what I mean? Like, so, so that's why, like, I noticed, and like my boyfriend, he's, he's from New York, but his dad moved to Australia 15 years ago. So he goes to Australia a lot. Um, he has some stomach issues. I've had stomach issues. We both notice whenever we go to Europe, whenever we go overseas, just eating exactly how we eat here. We're yep. still having bread. We're still doing this stuff. We just feel like I eat pasta in Italy and I don't get a stomach ache. And you but, don't feel heavy at yeah. all. Yeah. And that's because their wheat product is a completely different strand than ours. And ours has been genetically modified and butchered because they, they're, maybe they're bigger stalks or like the same way that our chickens look like bodybuilders. And then, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I totally agree because I'm a huge college football fan and I see these kids getting recruited now. They're like grown men. Like, oh, yeah. like kids that were 17 years old like me playing football does not look like the kids playing football today at 17. Like these are like- The same way you shouldn't get your period at 10 years old. Like it, we're we're all like- something they're putting in the food. Absolutely. So I, I, we are, we are genetically modified. We've been modified. Like, you know, with the hormones that are in our food and and, in our milk and all this other stuff, the the fact that our diet doesn't shift and that, you know, we're more for pro- everything you're opening is in a bag as opposed to like a vegetable or, you know, even like the good thing about me going on the strict diet, which I'm not nearly as strict as I was before, but it was three years where I was super strict doing something. I would say that's pretty much similar to paleo. What helped me is it changed my palate in a lot of good ways. It really kind of changed my gut so that I still think I have IBS, but the symptoms of it are like once a month, as opposed to it being like, once a day, every couple of days, like I was in constant, like gastrological distress. So I I learned enough to understand. And then also just like what you did, even two weeks of changing a really bad diet, when you go back, your body has harsher symptoms. So that like, let's say you think you're allergic to eggs, you cut eggs out for two weeks and you go, okay, let's find out. You could have been covering up or your body adjusts because we're so adaptive. Your body wasn't really showing full maximum I'm allergic to egg sign so that when you come back two weeks later, a month later, like now when I mess up my diet, because there's certain things I have never put back, when I mess it up, I get a shooting pain up my stomach. I've fallen out of my chair and just held myself because it's like I've had that pain before, but it's 10 times worse. And in some ways it prevents me from going back to really bad habits because I can't handle the pain anymore. Have you ever had one of those blood tests, those food blood tests? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See my, the thing that scored so high on mine was coffee. And yeah. since I've and eliminated kept, coffee, you kept doing it, right? Yeah, I kept even doing it. Even though it told you, even yeah. though it told you. It said, you drink coffee, you'll be inflamed. It's bad for you. I'm like, ah, oh, coffee. And then yeah. after the ICU and all that stuff, I don't drink. And literally my wife always looks at me and goes, you're so thin now because you haven't drank coffee. She thinks that's the game changer for me. I used to drink yeah. five, six, six shots of coffee a day. I never drank coffee. I was a shot yeah. taker. Yeah. But just not doing that anymore, I think really changed me a lot. But I don't think it, and, and you use the word that I think is important. I don't think you were thin. I think you were inflamed. So there's yes. actually, you can actually look at certain people that like, like there, you know how, like my, my sister always says that she's like, she's like, I'm like, we always did it with cats. We'd be like, I'm not fat. I'm fluffy. Yeah. And so we would always say the same thing. You're just like, I'm not fat. I'm fluffy. And there is a little bit to that where there's some people where they've gained weight and that is technically fat. There's some people where they're just puffy. 
Puffy like, in the face. Yeah, and you can kind of see it to the point where when they do like, and I say cleanse in this very like general sense. A cleanse could be like you just cut out you know, gluten because you think there's yeah. a problem with it or you cut out, like I said, eggs. Like there's like the seven main allergies. But to me, your, your body is constantly sending you signals, whether it's a, like I've had eczema my entire life. And when I first was going down this path of trying to heal my body, it wasn't about the eczema. The eczema was uncomfortable, but it was never as uncomfortable as the gastrological issues. So I go and I go, because this was 10 years ago, I was like, it, maybe it's gluten. That's the hot button allergy. Maybe yeah. it's gluten. So I cut out gluten 80% of my eczema went away. So, I mean, I'm telling people, I tell people, food is the main thing to change a lot of problems with your body. You know, yeah. you just got to do it. But then again, we're in a country where they don't wear masks, where they're fighting that. So you're not yeah. going to change your diet. Uh, I do want to ask you about, you're in New York with COVID. Have you been tested yet for COVID? So I'm, I'm still under the impression that tests are st still for people that are, they think they have it and they're worried. You know what I mean? So like, okay. I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel like I've, I had it or like, that's not true. I'm starting to think maybe I had a baby version of it in February because yeah. I, like I got, cause it, you know, it, it manifests differently in different people. And late February, it was, to me, it was the worst cold I've ever had. But it wasn't, it doesn't come close to any of the symptoms like I've heard from you and, and I've, I've read about. It was basically, I almost lost my voice and I had a cough that I couldn't sleep through. So I used to like, you know, you get a cold, you take NyQuil to kind of like rest and pass out. It did nothing. Yeah. So I started like taking Sudafed and like I was mixing drug. I've never been a, a drug mixer. I'm starting to be like literally like a pharmacist in my home where I'm like, I hope I wake up. Like yeah. I was just. I, I, I couldn't breathe. I was coughing so hard, um, which is horrifying because if this is true, I went to three states, <laughs> you know, during this time. Like, I, well, I remember. We didn't know, though. Like, honestly, like, you know, with asymptomatic people, with the different people carrying COVID, at that time, they didn't know. At my time, I went to the hospital. There was only, I was the first person at this hospital, and that was in early March. So in yeah. February, we really didn't know about it. So Oh, yeah. So so I don't know. It could have just been a bad cold. I have no idea. But then I, I was in Europe early March. when like I was in Paris when it was spreading in Paris. I was in London when it was spreading in London. And then I was supposed to um, go to Germany, and that's when, like, Trump, like, shut everything down. So I came home because, you know, I didn't, want, I didn't want them to have the pandemic without me. I was like, I'm coming, yes. New York. I was like, please, yes. wait, please. I was like, please. Um, so I came home, and within, like, a day of coming home, um, like, a little bit in London and coming home, I was just very sniffly. And what I felt was weird about that, it wasn't bad. I had a little baby cough, and I was a little sniffly. It was, like, almost like a 10% of a cold. What I felt weird about that is usually – I get a cold like once or twice a year and it's really spread. It's like, I get the cold, I'm better and I don't get a cold again. And the fact that I got a cold within about two weeks of itself, I was like, this yeah. is weird. I was like, this is weird. So of course, you know, you come home, you quarantine. Like I was like, my boyfriend was also traveling at the time and he, his job was like, go home. My job was like, go home. And so we literally came home on the, on the same day and we were both like, I, I don't know what we brought home with us, but we should be like safe about it. Cause yeah. we're the, we're, we're kind of the problem. And I, I never felt like I got anything. Like I had friends that were like, I'm losing my taste. So like I had friends that were like also kind of having these baby versions of it. I thought about getting the antibodies test, but from everything I read, there's like 50 antibodies tests. Only three of them are regulated. So to like go out and take this kind of, in my mind, unnecessary risk. You're not going to the grocery store. You're not doing yeah, anything. Especially in New York at that time. It just didn't make sense to me because it could say, yes, you have the antibodies, but 50% of the time they don't, it's not right. Yeah. So it's just, it just feels like, and knowing me, cause I know my personality, if the antibodies test was like, you had it, you're, you have superpowers. I'd be going, <laughs> I would go around and be high-fiving people like, and I don't want to be like, this person that has false information that's going about like almost cocky, like nobody can hurt me, especially because they actually don't even know if that's true either. So I, to me, there's no point in me getting the test because I don't think I have any of the symptoms. I'm just taking the precautions of wearing a mask and social distancing and doing the right thing. But then the antibodies test doesn't even feel like it has value because they're not regulated enough to say anything. Yeah. My wife took it. I took it. 
uh, not our kids, uh, but we did the one that was FDA approved and not saying that, that it's not off, but of, I wanted to do it to see if I would come back. This was after the COVID. Yeah. I was like, if it says I don't have antibodies, then this test is totally wrong, but it was a big one. It wasn't the fingerprint. It was a three, two blood draw. They spin yeah. it and do everything. So, so I, I believe that's the most accurate one. The, the fingertip one, not accurate, but if they're taking a lot of blood out of you, putting in yeah. the tubes, I feel that's a better shot. But like I said, nobody yeah. knows. I mean, leeches do the same thing, but I get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, so so did you, does your wife have the antibodies? She has it. And, uh -oh. um, and then mom. Uh, You're breaking up. Oh no, why is this happening? Are you there? There you yeah. go. Yeah. So you, okay, well, I heard we'll cut your, that part out. Yeah. So you said your, your wife. Oh, well, so uh, my wife had the antibodies. I had the antibodies. My mom got COVID from me as well. No, she, no, she beat in one day and talked shit to me all the time. I beat <laughs> in one day. You go, I see you. I beat one day, one day right here. You know, she's that woman. She threw it in my face. As soon as I was well, she go, oh. So, oh, big, strong man. <laughs> oh, you, you're so healthy, huh? I beat one day. Like that was her. Literally, that was her. And uh, so everybody around me got it. Everybody got the antibody test. But I will say, everybody came back positive. Nobody came back that they didn't have it. Yeah. So, but they took the same one I took. Like, the, I yeah. feel this is the most accurate one. So, yeah. who knows? Do you feel safe in New York now to go out? Or are you still kind of, whoa, what's going on? Um, I'm not, like, high-fiving people. And, like, I'm, I'm taking walks. Like, that's my biggest luxury thing is that I'll, I'll, I live about a mile from the park and I'll go and have a walk with a friend. And I feel like um, most people are keeping to themselves or to their small group yeah. of people. And we've been quarantined for months. And most I feel like New York is taking most of the CDC precautions that when I go and meet somebody kind of outside my circle to go for a walk outside, I don't feel fearful. I'm not yeah. hugging my friends. Um, you know, I'm mostly wearing a mask. I think we, when I'm outside, I feel a lot safer. And I think that's really what people are kind of with, you know, restaurants having outdoor seating and whatnot. Um, are you at to, are you to the point where you can do the outdoor seating right now? yourself i'm not doing it because i have no money coming in so like it's just to me it's like i'm like i i'm like ten dollars like are you insane like i'll just fucking make a microwavable pizza like that's insane like i i'm i'm not fully back into life because i don't have much of a life to go back to like yeah this is the most i've spent with my roommates and in my apartment in like five years like six years like i I don't remember spe like, and I love my roommates uh -huh. and I, 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 I like where I live. Like it's, it's, but I, I'm, I'm a be in a different place every three days kind of person. Yeah. Like you I wrote, travel a lot. Yeah. And what's really like, kind of like bad timing is I, so I got a book deal, a very silly book deal. It's about cats. Um, <laughs> but I have, I have a book coming out, um, uh, early next year and I, I had to get it done by end of February. So I really kind of lowered my touring schedule and I, December's always kind of slow for me. So I took like December, I didn't really book up. And then January, I would normally start touring and I, I almost did nothing in January. And then my tour started February 1st. So I actually oh stayed goodness. home again. That would have been my longest I've ever stayed home. This like almost two months of only doing like four gigs. And then I go, I tour for like a month and a half. And now this is the longest I've never done comedy, never, you know, been like been home. How, like, you know, you do travel a lot for comedy. How is the money overseas compared to in America? Um, it, de it depends. Um, it depends on where you're going. Um, it also depends on your fan base. So let's just say that. So as somebody that's kind of like um, not famous, but, but has fans, I mm -hmm. guess is the best way to describe where I am. Um, I have a little more, wiggle room. I'm making more money in America because, or I was, uh, because I was doing these independent theaters. I was doing like 60 to 150 seat theaters, which. See, I love that you did that. And I started rethinking everything. I was like, this is amazing. Like you oh. just do one night and then you're out. 
Oh, dude, I could, we could talk specifically about that. Like, I feel like if you have any kind of fan base, if this is the thing is that there's, I feel like there's two types of comics. There's the comics that are go, I just want to do comedy. Everybody else can handle this. It's too much work or I don't understand it or I don't want to do it. And then there's the, like the other comics that are either they, and there's like that even gets split up. Either they want all the money. So they do all the work or they know exactly what they want. And this is where like my little OCD thinks it comes in. They know exactly what they want. They know how to handle it and they're willing to take the risk. And I'm very much that avenue, which is like, I wasn't, because I don't have the TV credits that most people have, nobody was just like, we need Liz Mealy. But as I grew a fan base, there was a, you know, there's, there's a, um, a, a, there was a need. There were people that were willing to come out. So I started taking risks last year and just like I was, you know, I would do a comedy club for a couple of nights or I would, um, what do you call it? I would open for like a comic that's more established than me and I was making okay money and I was fine. But like I started to notice that I was like, okay, financially speaking, if even if I sell out a 50 seater place, which isn't very big, I could make three times as much money if then if I was doing four days at these places that are bigger and it's, and it's driven on having a fan base, but I was starting to develop that fan base and I started doing these really, and it's a lot of work to even find small theaters, Yeah. but I started doing it and I started negotiating my worth with the, with, cause you're also renting a space as opposed to, you know, when you're, you're a club club comic, there's a guarantee. So if people don't come, you still make money. I was taking huge risks, which is if no one comes, this is a dud, but I was only doing one nighters. So, and then I was starting local. Okay. If I do a 50 seater in Philly, if I do, so if I do a 50 seater or a hundred seater in DC, but what was happening is as my fan base was growing, but I was also taking this risk and then you concentrate where people are seeing you. And I would sell out 150 seaters. Which, How'd you know where the people like your best markets? What, um, what do I've you had, do? I've had a mailing list for 10 years oh, and I've, okay. I've always pushed that. Now keep in mind, it's tripled in the last year, but I've always kind of looked as that, like I would look at my mailing list and be like, okay, well I have 300 people in Baltimore. Let's, let's try Baltimore. Let me get 50. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's kind of where the ratio was. And I would do the same thing with my social media. Okay. It looks like I have 3% of my entire fan base lives in Los Angeles. Let's go to Los Angeles. So I, the risks were calculated and some of them were adjacent. So I knew I had a huge fan base in Toronto, but I was like, let me try Montreal. And then if the venue in Montreal didn't charge too much, or if like there was something that made the risk worth it, where like, even if I break even, I'm already in Canada, so it's not yeah. that big of a deal. Or like there's a couch I could sleep on or something that made it so the risk, I would take it. And then like Montreal, I was really scared because I'd never been to Canada before. I didn't, I knew some people, but I didn't know I had the fan base and I didn't sell out. I think I've rented like a place that could hold like 120 and I got like almost 70 and I made good money. And I was yeah. like, and it was my favorite show. Like my tour got cut short, but it was my favorite show of the tour. And it was a place that I didn't know anything about just knew that just for laughs was there, but like I had never been to before. And I was like, Oh, and I was scared up until the day of, because it was like, I think 25 ticket sales four days before. And I was like, all right, I might just break even. And you know, I just have to be okay with that. And then it shot up to 70 and I was like, I'm famous. Nah. How much, how much do like on the average? Cause I know every venue is different, but average, how much were you paying per venue? So it depends. So some of them are going to give you like a door deal. So some of them are going to be like, um, uh, we'll charge you like a hundred dollars and we take, uh, 20% of the door gotcha. or some of them are going to be like, we're going to charge you 400, but we take, you get a hundred percent of the money, you know? So it's, it was always like a negotiation and you just have to kind of do the math based on what your ticket, how much ticket sales, how many people you're expecting. So some venues, I would take this risk. Like, um, like if you, if you're charging me a lot upfront, I would negotiate, I get the full door or you get almost yeah, no percentage of, of my ticket sales. But if you gave me that, like there's some venues that gave it to me for nothing. And so then it's like, I'm going to give them a higher percentage or like, it would be like after this number, I give them percentage. So it's, it's a lot of negotiating. It's a lot of work, but I started to know my worth to the point where like there was this one venue it took me forever to find a good venue in San Diego. And these guys had this small venue, a 50 seater at a bar. And I was going to do two shows because the first one sold out. And I'm really sad because they were so easy to work with. It was a rock venue um, in San Diego, but all the comedy clubs are all the comedy. They were never got back to me. Their deals were like, we'll take 40%. And then you yeah. also have to, and I was like, 
dude, I know what I can bring to the table. Like that's the cool thing about learning your self-worth. I spent so much time being dragged around by people that were like, ah, you're not funny enough or you don't have fans or da, da, da. And then when you start to get your own fan base and you know your value, you just go, I could do this in a basement. Like who cares? Like Mm -hmm. if people are going to come out, it's just about giving people a good show and making sure that they feel good about what they're going to. But like, it's made me get even more creative on the business side, which is something I think really um, makes me feel good about myself and makes me feel like I can empower other comics. I am so, I'm not saying fuck the comedy clubs because there's tons of comedy clubs that have been good to me, but I am so pro sticking up for yourself because you know us, we, we do, especially in LA, you do a 10 minute spot, you get nothing. Yeah. In New York, we get a little bit of money, but it doesn't always come up to the amount of work that we're doing. So it's like the amount of money they make off us in the beginning, even when we're established just to kind of get stage time, it's, it's pertinent that you, you think about your own worth because I was burning myself out and still not able to pay my bills. Yeah. And the last year and a half is like the first time that I was like, oh, I have a savings account. I have a savings account. Like, well, not I, anymore after COVID. No, but. <laughs> no, no, that's gone. But like, I'm also looking at some of my girlfriends that like, I have two close friends. We, we talked about yep. Carmen Lynch, um, who's really close. And my friend, Adrian Appalucci, like, I feel like they're like my, my, my girl band in New yeah. York City. And we're all like, they've had more TV credits than I have. I feel like they get more work in certain areas that I don't get work at. But my fan base is actually insulated me a little bit more to what's going on right now. To the fact that I'm always like, okay, you need to get royalties because if you get hurt, you get sick, um, you can't do the road, whatever. So I've been the like this little like mom annoying friend that's been like, you should do this. So you have this other income, you should do this so that, and then this happened and like, they're all like, we should have done what Liz said. And I'm yeah. thinking, I know I didn't predict COVID, but I was predicting like, we're not essential. Like there's going to be times where our whole life is dependent on us moving and going from place to place. And what happens when we can't do that? Yeah. It, it, it just blows my mind how everything's changed of COVID. I, I, do you feel comedy will be back fully clubs open like by the end of the year? Or do you think it's a next year thing? I think it's a next year thing. I think we're going to have like baby opens and we're going to have open closes. I think we're going to have a lot of like, uh, uh. but like, I think the biggest thing is, is clubs, clubs and comedians are adapting. There's more outdoor shows. There's drive-in shows. There's, I'm sure there's going to be half capacity shows. What do you, what do you think about the zoom shows? Have you done one of those? Are you into that? I, I can't get into it. I've never done it. I doubt I will ever do it, but that's just my, that's it's my a- thing. It depends on what you value and what you're looking for. Um, are they ideal? Absolutely not. Um, do they give you the same like fix or excitement that live shows do? Absolutely not. Um, can you get a little bit of comedic feedback and work if you're trying to grow an idea? Yes. So for me, immediately I was like, I don't want to perform my polished stuff and have me lose confidence or ruin my timing or have people see me see these jokes and these ideas in their least favorable form. So I kind of limited how many like paid gigs or polished gigs I would do. And I started reframing that any showcase show I do or any big show that I work on, I go, can I do new material? And if they say yes, I go, yeah, I'll absolutely do it. And I'll have some polished stuff in there, but it's about working new ideas and staying sharp and, and, pushing through and and adapting to this format to at least, I don't think I'm going to polish a full joke because I have some jokes that are like, they're like 60% to 80% done. But I think that last 20% isn't going to get done until live shows because you can't get the same feedback. And also sounds kind of silly. People are a little too generous. So, you know, when you do a show and everything you say like works and you're like murdering and like, it doesn't feel as good. It's like a little bit like you need a little bit of like when one joke gets a little egg, you're like, okay, this is real. This is real. Cause that joke, that joke isn't my best joke and they felt it. So when this joke kills, it means that it really is good. As opposed to like everything you say hits, you're like, I don't trust you. I don't, what do you want? <laughs> you want money? What do you want? Why are you being like this? So I feel a little bit with zoom shows, people are so understanding that this, we're not getting the same laughs. It's not the same. So I feel like people have been very generous with their, their time and their money and their, their expression that I'm like, is this really funny? Is it like, I don't feel like I'm getting a real so, honest. So read. let me get this right on zoom shows. You'll just do new material with a couple of polish. 
Is that what yeah. you're saying? Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I even though, because I've created Zoom shows, like I created a show called Zoom Diner, which is kind of like this made up idea that I think more and more people are doing, which is like a good example, Adrian and Carmen, I'll meet up with them between shows, after shows, we'll, we'll get food and we'll be working on something. And I'll be like, hey, I can't get this line to work. Can I, can I tell you the joke and you tell me what you think? Or, hey, do you think this is funny? And we'll test each other on stuff. And our first feedback is friend feedback. And sometimes my confidence is built on a joke because of friend feedback. And sometimes my perspective is changed because of friend feedback. And it's, it's something that helps me frame a joke before I ever say it to an audience, or it helps me um, fix a problem if it, I keep doing it and I'm just going down the same bad path. So I was like, what if I showed that to audiences? Because I didn't like, I feel like the, the laughter in your ear is like kind of intense and you can't get the timing down. And mm -hmm. then having everybody mute also isn't very helpful either. So then my idea was I'll tell my jokes to Adrian and Carmen or to two other friends and I'll get the feedback from them and the audience gets to watch it. So they get to see this behind the scenes gotcha. process. Okay. And so I've been doing that and that's been both helpful of, um, inspiring me to write. Cause it's really hard to be inspired to write if there's nowhere to do it. And then, feeling like I'm getting authentic feedback because I'm showing it to my, my two close friends and then also giving audiences a unique perspective in the That's a great idea. Process. That's very so that's, cool. Yeah, so I, I took off like a month just when things started to reopen because I, I thought things were going to reopen. Now, sadly, less so. So I'm going to start doing another one. I've done four so far and I'm going to do a, a new one, um, I think in like two weeks. But like I did one with um, like Judah Friedlander and, yeah. my, and Maria Shahada. I did one with Gina Brione and Orlando Baxter. You know, or, oh, Orlando, I love right? both. I love both. Yeah, yeah. So that was. She's about cool. to have the baby, right? Soon. Uh, Gina. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm so excited for her. She's she's so funny. She's the so best. I I just know knowing Gina because I've known Gina for probably my whole career. So like knowing Gina for like 15 years, I'm like, oh, her baby jokes are gonna fucking. They're just gonna mar like to oh, me. Oh, they're, they're gonna crush. It's just like that's the other thing about like quarantine is being like, oh, I can't wait to hear. I haven't talked to this comic in four months. I can't wait to hear their perspective on what happened because I know it's going to be so unique. And we're going to have, I think that's the biggest fear a lot of comics have is we're going to have so much crossover because how often do we all go through the same experience? Mm -hmm. And that's why airplane jokes became hack is because every comic was on an airplane. So every comic was talking about airplanes. So I'm like, oh, I can't wait for quarantine jokes to be hacked. Oh <laughs> yeah, it's just gonna, everybody's gonna have it. Now I wanna get to your special that's out on YouTube right now, Self Help Me. Where'd you get the name of the, where's the name come from? It's funny, I feel like I've been recycling this name for like 10 years. Like I had a script I was writing uh, 10 years ago called Self Help Me. And then um, I had a blog called Self Help Me. And um, I think, it's because thematically self-help books have been a part of my life since I was a kid. My dad is absolutely obsessed with them. He would negotiate reward. Like, like we had a lot of chores and those were just like mandatory. There's no, like I'm one of five kids. You always had to take care of the kids and help my mom and all that stuff. But like extra stuff, like my best friend when I was in elementary school moved to Tennessee. And so my dad would be like, if you want to go visit Danny in Tennessee, you need to read this book and help your mom do this. X and it was like, he wanted, and this is where it comes to like a little bit of like manipulation and bigger, larger family issues. But the intent in my mind was of a place of love and a different, because self-help books helped my father in his upbringing that was difficult. He felt like these would guide us and be a voice of reason and be like another teacher. And I feel like they were given to us too young. I feel like they were, they become addictive in a lot of ways because you get a kind of a high from a, a self-help book because it's like, you can do it. And you're like, yeah. I, can, I can do it. Thank you. Thank you. I can do it. Oh my God. Stephen Covey, I feel like I could do anything. So you're reading it and it's saying like, you can do this. Other people have done this. You can do this. And it feels like, like, like after a show, you're like, yeah, I can do it. And then like the book ends and you don't have that voice anymore. And you're starting to try to implement some of these things and it's not coming easily and you get frustrated. So then you're like, I need another book. So you get another book. And now Tony Robbins is like, I can do it. And you're like, I can do it. And it becomes kind of addictive. And then it also becomes like, 
the same way that like, you know, like Instagram, like, like quotes are just like, if you don't love me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. Uh And now people are implementing that. Like, that's like, like, you know, that's God. And like, that's what you should be like, like it almost chunks ideas. And I'm not saying that there's a problem with chunking ideas, but like, I just feel like it becomes almost toxic a little bit and it becomes a way of, um, first of all, you only fix what you know about. And in a lot of ways, and it's a conversation I've had with my dad because my dad's always been anti-therapy and I feel like I've really changed because of therapy. I go, Mm -hmm. self-help books can only help you where you're willing to see there's a problem. Does that make sense? So Uh, you have these giant blind spots that you refuse to look at or you don't even know exist. And if you read a book, how are you going to fix something you don't know about? As opposed to maybe you have a close friend that you trust that you're willing to listen to or your wife or your husband or a therapist or what have you. And all of a sudden you're able to do more work. And I think self-help books have a little bit of value, but I think as a society, we've almost replaced real communication or real community or therapy, which I think everybody could use some version of it um, as opposed in, in replacement of like real growth and it becomes addictive. So I felt like I was in a cycle as young as 12 years old that I kept feeling it's all going to work out. I'm not good enough. It's all going to work out. I'm not good enough. It's all going to work out. And it was this, I felt like I was in a trap. And so So, a lot of who I am is kind of based off that. Okay. So self help me YouTube special. Uh, When a lot of comics today are putting their specials on YouTube now, like that's a big trend that's happening. Um, Do you feel that is the new way to do it? So I think it's a, like, I, I feel mean, like of course, like, everybody pitches the Netflix and every, everything else like that. Netflix is not picking up everything. We know that. Yeah. But I also see comedians now like Sam Morrell and other comedians. Uh, Mark yeah. just put his on YouTube. You yeah. have yours on YouTube. And they're getting some heat, you know, so it could be a new thing. Yeah, I actually think it's, it's going to drive more there for a couple of reasons. The first reason is networks are, are limiting how many specials are going for. If you're not the, the new hot comic or you're not famous, they're not even looking at you. So that right there, you're limiting 98% of comedians yep. just because they're, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you're, you either have to be Kevin Hart or you have to be Taylor Tom, Tomlinson. I, can't, I don't know how to say her name. You have to be like the it person this year, or you have to have been famous yeah. for the last 15 years. And that's it. So that just leaves out our entire community and thousands of comedians. But we all are working. We all have people that are paying attention to us. There's little baby TV things we're doing. There's a fan base. So, and then social media, of course, has helped a lot of people. And I, I, I would say it's been life-changing for me. So the next step is if you believe you have value, how do you, how do you build yourself up to show either the network so you can get on the networks or so you can build a fan base so you can do what I talked about earlier, which is touring and making money. And so the nice thing about social media and YouTube and all that stuff is if you don't have a fan base, putting your special out there can help you build a fan base. And if you do have a fan base, this both satiates your fans, but also gives them a reference to make new fans. So, you know, I have somebody that's like, you're the best comic I've ever seen. And I go, cool tell your friends. Yeah. And then they tell three friends and now you have four people in Toronto as opposed to just one person. And it, you, we are, we used to build a fan base because we had to be picked and then we had to be thrown on TV and then social media came about and now you can kind of pick yourself in a lot of ways. I'm not saying it's just easy. You throw a thing up and people come. I think you have to build it over time. And I've been building up my YouTube for almost 10 years, very slowly, but as algorithms have changed, as um, different social, like, let's put it this way. I, I've gained 40,000 followers in less than a year on Instagram. Okay. And it was basically three big uh, videos that went viral that I would shoot up like 10,000 people at a time. Yeah, I've been on TikTok for it was right before my tour. So I want to say like end of February. So I've been on TikTok end of February. Um, one video went viral in March when I was in London and I, I went from 70 followers to uh, 15,000 followers. And then I just had um, a video hit almost 2 million views last week. And now I'm up to almost 50,000. Yeah. So 
we're talking about, I've been doing this 18 years. We're talking about 18 years of experience with very few fans, a punk band. I have a punk band worth of fans. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can charge $5 and somebody will be like, it was kind of fun. That yeah. was where I was. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm starting to be at a place where, I mean, I have fans in India tell me, when am I, when am I coming to India? And I was like, I don't know. Let's figure it out. Well, like, do you, do you feel that? You're, it's kind of a bummer that, you know, this COVID thing is happening. What's your special out? Because you, kind of I mean, you can't of take bummer. advantage of it. And, um, and you're hoping that it will last, you know, till after the COVID, the heat of the special will last. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will say this, though. I, and I feel that I definitely feel that way. I am frustrated. I taped this in November. I was trying to sell it to some networks. There was some interest, but then all budgets got cut, blah, 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 blah. YouTube was always my backup plan. Um, and then... Quite frankly, m most of my money, 80% of my income is touring. So we're talking about me, not only not able to make money, but like somebody going, I love this special. I mean, I made a little bit on YouTube ads, but if you don't come to my show, I get no reward from this. Yeah. I mean, I lost money making the special and then I don't even get to make money in the moment from your fanness. So I'm, I'm truly... I'm truly taking like nine risks at once, just being like, well, let's see it. And then I'm not even writing a lot of new material. So I am scared when things start up again, my base of new material isn't strong. So I don't want people's first impression of me after they saw my special that took two years to, 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 to like polish, be like, I don't think she's very good. So I'm very scared in that sense. I will say this though, I am, I'm not just, a comedian and I don't think my value is just my stand-up. I have a podcast. I, you know, I do different stuff to help with mental illness. I, I write scripts. I, um, I'm writing, you know, I wrote a cat book that's coming out. So I think a lot of it is keeping your fans satiated and showing how multifaceted you are. And even like, as I, I, I worry about how I say this, but like, I've never considered myself a very political person in the sense that I felt but had political feelings, but I didn't express them via comedy. So that the way I'm expressing that is like, we could talk about it, but I don't know if I would implement it into my standup because yeah. that's just not what I talked about. But I always understood that as somebody that is a feminist, as somebody that does believe Black Lives Matter, it would, it would be kind of infold, like an omelet. It would be kind of enfolded in there. And you'd be like, does this have Black Lives Matter? Does this have tomatoes yeah. in it? Like they were in there, but they weren't. Like I opened for Hari Kondabolu a lot. He's a really close friend of mine. He's explicitly political and talks about race. Mine was always like mixed in there, but it was like, it was always me being very personal. And I think with everything that's gone on, I'm, I'm less scared to be explicit. And I feel like that's been something that I'm excited to see where that takes me. See, I'm, I'm at the same point as you, because now I have kids. I, I totally stay away from politics, you know, at, at the time, but I talk politics all the time with my of friends, course. you know, and my friends are always like, why don't you add this to your, your material? Because I feel like some people just do that really well. Well, and that's, I've always you know what I mean? And that's their yeah. thing. That's their thing. I don't know if I could do it well, but now, but if I can make it personable, now that I have two kids, do I want them to grow up in a world like this, looking through their eyes and seeing now it's now it's very personal to me where I'm yeah. not just making jokes about certain people in politics. I don't want to be that guy, but yeah, I do I want to tell the story, like how it affects me. So I'm excited. I'm the, I, we're on the same page where I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah. And I think that's been what's really powerful is like, I don't know if this much time and this much saturation would have made me like, even like political, like making jokes out of talking about masks or, or even like I have like, and I don't know how it's going to flesh out, but I had this long tweet about what it feels like to be a white person where people are like, do better and, and why people are pushing back on that. And my whole thing is like, it has to do with the fact that we're not doing all the work. And I compared it to math where like you could get the right answer, but if you're not showing your work, you don't get 100%, you get 60%. I was always getting my math test knocked down because I'm like, I got the right answer. They're like, yeah, but this is garbage, Liz. What is this weird problem that you, this is not how I taught you to do this. So I made this comparison that showing the work as a white person 
is just as important as putting up the Black Lives Matter or, you know, even just donating. Like, yes, that's great that you donated. It's yes, great that you did that. But like, I was talking to my friend Quincy and he goes, you know, black guy. I think what he was upset about was he's looking at people he worked for or worked with saying they donated, saying Black Lives Matter. He goes, but you're the one that made me feel small in an office. Oh yeah. You're the one. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you don't even know, you think, you're a social justice warrior and because you did this, but you're, you're the one in the office that is part of the problem. So, so even kind of showing like this, this is multifaceted and we all have a responsibility and me finding out where my responsibility is and taking ownership of it. And I can do that personally with my friends, but I think as I do build a fan base, I already talk about the awkwardness of being a woman. I talk about the awkwardness of being, you know, an angry woman. I talk about the awkwardness of being a New Yorker and traveling. Like I have all these different facets of my personality that I show my mistakes. I'm going to start showing my white mistakes. Like I want to start showing people that you can be an it. I always love Chappelle talking about, it's one of the most important phrases I think he's ever said. He's like, we need to start accepting imperfect allies. Mm -hmm. And and, and it was so, that resonated so much with me because unfortunately, and I, I wonder if you relate to this having kids, we raise kids that it's okay to make mistakes. And then we tell adults, you will lose everything if you make a mistake. And it's made people paralyzed. And I think one of the things people really like about comedy is we go around talking about our mistakes. Whoops. Well, I learned from that one. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, You're like... Yeah, it's interesting. You know, my wife is white, but she's starting to realize because we have multicultural kids, stuff she never noticed before. She's she's white, blonde hair, blue eyes from Wyoming. You know, yeah. no, no cop. I mean, when you look up white in the dictionary, it's my wife with an apple yeah. pie, like yeah. literally. But she's never experienced being pulled over for no reason. She's never experienced being harassed by the cops. And, you know, I got these new stories about I was driving to Vegas. I was speeding. Like a cop pulled me over, I was speeding, and my wife got upset at the cop because in Vegas, they get you from an uh, airplane. Oh, so okay. they track you from an airplane, then a cop comes and pulls you over. My wife is arguing with the cop, well, how does the airplane know it was us? Like me, I'm like, I'm like, you're about to get me killed. Do you understand what's going on? She goes, you know how many black SUVs are out here and the airplane's gonna pick our car? And I'm like, honey, I sped. And I can't yell at my wife yeah, because yeah, yeah. then a cop is like, oh, you yelling at a white woman. I was like, yeah, no, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. so I'm just like, baby, it's okay. No, it's you're not like texting okay. Her. You're texting her like, I was, like I was yeah. speeding. He's right, like he's not wrong. <laughs> but just that she didn't even think about yelling at a cop. Like it was yeah, like yeah. nothing. Like it's like, he's wrong, we're right. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it really doesn't work like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yo, you're gonna, be, you're gonna be right while burying me. So. Yeah, right? That's what I'm saying. I was like, honey, like literally I told her when we drove off, you almost killed me. And she yeah, didn't understand you, it until, yeah. but now she does. You just, yeah. because I believe a lot of people aren't racist, they're just uneducated because nothing like that's ever happened to them. Now there are a, some people that are just straight up racist. But a lot of people just don't know because it doesn't affect them and it's not in their face. Also, I think, I think one of the most important aspects of white privilege is if more white people are in a position of power. And not just, we're not just talking about Jeff Bezos' power. Yeah. We're talking about you're a person that has two employees. That's a position of power. So when you're, when somebody can lose something by speaking to power, by pushing against it, and they don't trust that you're going to look at all sides of it and they don't trust your mental stability or your empathy or whatever else it takes that it, sometimes it's scary just to tell a friend that, or tell your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife that. So you do something that feels horrific to them. When, when can they say something if they could lose everything for saying something? Yeah, yeah. What, what's a good controls, time? When somebody controls your livelihood, you know, that's like... And there's no checks and balances. Yeah, there's not, there's not. Well, hopefully, you know, that's what, we're, that's what we're working on. Hopefully, you know, moving the world in a better place. And that's why we're here. You know, yeah. and we do it through comedy and other people can do it through different ways. So uh, self-help me is out. It's on YouTube. Yeah. Check it out and give out all your handles and all that cool stuff. Yeah. Everything is at Liz Mealy, M-I-E-L-E. -E. Um, yeah, I'm on the TikTok. I'm TikToking. Oh, do you um, like TikTok? You know what? I'm, I, 
this is because social media has helped me so much. I was like, my first initiative was like, I can't do another thing. Like, yeah. I was just like, I'm just, I'm already, I'm tweeting, I'm Instagramming, <laughs> I'm YouTubing. I was like, I was like, I'm only one person. And then a part of me was like, what's the harm in trying? What's and it's your job. It's your job yeah. to get your stuff out to as many people as possible. I was like, what's the harm in trying? And so, you know, I'm not fully TikToking. I'm not like doing dances. Yeah. I'm watching the dances, but I'm not doing the dances. Um, I'll make little videos, but for the most part, I'm really just repurposing my standup and finding a different audience. And like I said, it's, it's almost beating almost all my social media in a matter of months just from putting myself out there. Yeah. And it, it, I, there's pros and cons to all this stuff. I've had days where I've wasted away looking at TikTok. I get it. I mean, right now I have the time to waste, but I've always told people that are trying to build a fan base, whether it's comedy or music or what have you, what's the harm in trying? And even if you just meet another artist, like it connects you in a way, like I, my little sister did the, um, the music to my, my special. She's the, I, I walk out to her song uh -huh. and then the credits are done to her song. Um, uh, my sister's an incredible singer songwriter. And so I, um, you know, I say like, this is my sister and I took the closing credits and I put it out there and I go, this is my sister's music. So whenever somebody's like, oh my God, your sister sounds like an angel. I take a screenshot and I go, here's, you know, here's a Aww. little bit of like you, whatever. And my sister's like, this feels so nice. And I go, well, you could do that too. She goes, but I have seven followers. And I go, and then tomorrow you might have eight. Yeah. You have to, like the funny part about it is people come into your life and they see what you've built and they don't see how long it took you to build that. Yes, I'm getting these shoot ups of 10,000 people a day, but for 10 years, I was getting seven a week. And you know what's, what's amazing? And I noticed this from doing huge shows where sellouts and then doing smaller shows. You always, as a comic, you think there's only this number of people here or, oh my God, I sold it out. But you think, well, the people aren't gonna enjoy this show because there's only like 30 people there, right? Or 50 yeah. people there. Those people do not care about who comes besides it. And that's what's amazing that it took me a while to get over that. Like they're not gonna have as much fun because it's not packed. Some of the best shows I've had were to like 70 people, yeah. you know, and they have a blast. So I think that's the same with social media is like, I used to think, well, I can't send them to my YouTube page because I've had a YouTube page for a year. I have yeah. nobody on my YouTube page. Yeah. Right? But then I was thinking, they don't care. If they like the content, they like the content. You know, there you yeah. go. So it, I, I feel the same way, yeah. Yeah, so. but yeah, I'm on all the things. I think for me, I've been working because I can't tour. I have a podcast. Did you ever meet Maria Shahada? She lived in LA. No. Uh -uh. Maria's awesome. So uh, I met Maria started in Ohio, but she lived in New York. That's how we became friends, went to LA. And now she lives in London. She's been in London for three years and um, Egyptian American shorter than I am. And we've just <laughs> always like, like one of the best storytellers and just honestly, just the funniest, kindest person. And we've been really close, even though we've only lived in the same city for, I think almost three years, we've been a long distance friendship for coming on 15. Wow. So, so we, I was staying with her in London. And when we both knew that we weren't doing stand up anymore, I was like, we had this inside joke about how we both give medical advice, but we don't know what we're doing, but we're very confident. I was like, we should do a show called two non doctors. And so we basically, she has misophonia, which is like this hatred of sound and this thing that I kind of diagnosed because she was just a crazy person. And I was like, I think you might have an illness. And, and then I showed her and it changed her life. She's like, I thought I was crazy. And now I know I have this thing. And then like, I talk about my depression and being dyslexic. So it's basic us kind of normalizing the fact that we're all just kind of figuring out our bodies and our lives. And that's been really rewarding. Like that's like, I don't want it to replace stand up, but it's been really nice not to like, feel like I have to get a certain reaction to people and yeah. getting genuine emails from people. It's been really nice doing a podcast and I was yeah. very anti-podcast. No, what I love about podcasting is the people that roll with you on your podcast, those are your people. 100% yeah. yes. without a doubt, those are your people, they're ride or dies. You know what I mean? And that's what's great about podcasting that I don't think any, even in standup, sometimes you'll get new people to just want to check you out, you know, but then may leave. When they check you out on a podcast and if they love you, every episode they're listening to. Yeah. And if you really think about it, you're talking to them longer than family members talk to them. Oh, that's a good Just point. think about it. If, you, if we have an hour conversation and somebody listens to this whole hour, if you took all week how much they actually talked to their family member, it would probably be less than an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. So 
they're, you're entertaining them more than a family member would a lot of times. And about yeah. real stuff. Like about I, I real can, stuff. Yeah. Like stuff that they don't feel like they can talk about. Like I've had a couple of people reach out to me like talking because I talk about my anxiety and my depression and stuff like that. Or like we did, we, uh, me and Maria just did an episode about how to find a therapist. Like Maria's like, I've never really found a great one and I'm not so sold on it. And I'm like, it changed my life. Like I, mm. I am a shadow of the person I was nine years ago when I got into it and I, I'm forever grateful. And so we kind of gave, we, we do it a lot. We give like a lot of dueling perspectives to certain things. And uh, a fan was just like, I, and I said something, you know, when you say something poignant and you're like, I am smart. I yeah. said something and I go, the hardest part about finding a therapist is a, it's very similar to like trying to find a, like a spouse, you know, like a, like a, a regular relationship or even connecting with a friend, but you're at the worst possible time in your life. You know what I mean? Most people don't go to a therapist where they're like, I feel like I could tune up my personality. It's yeah. like, I am devastated. I am suicidal. I don't know what to do next. I am sad all the time. Let me well, find somebody to help. Well, you yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And you're trying to find somebody to help you when your decision making isn't its best. You don't feel good about yourself. You're, you're scared to be vulnerable. It's a, it's a hard process in itself. And then you're in the worst place. And she's like, the way you said it just made me be a little nicer to myself about the fact that I haven't found the right therapist yet. And it's like, it's a really hard journey. It's a hard thing just to decide you want to go. It's even harder to find the right person and to know why they're the right person. And then you know, they push you. So there's times where my therapist, I've walked away and been like, fuck her, fuck her. And now I know if I'm, if I leave an appointment and I say, fuck her, oh, she hit something. She hit yeah. something I need to work on. So that's been like the joy of it is that like, it's, it, it even helps me understand how I'm connecting with people. Cause sometimes I don't know, like, I don't know what people, what's resonating with people. And it, it's been a different way of experiencing my fan base. All right. Well, Liz, thank you so much for being on thank the podcast. Thank you. All right. Self-help me on YouTube. Go watch it right now. And I think you said something earlier that keeps popping into my head. And I think you should um, make it the name of one of your specials down the line. Genetically Modified. I think it would be an amazing, an amazing title for one of your specials. All right. That's thank awesome. you for joining me. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much, dude. We'll I talk soon. It.